Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. We record at a moment of historic political change in both Israel and the United States. If all goes as planned, at midnight on Wednesday, the Knesset will complete the process of voting to dissolve itself, pushing the button for new national Israeli elections that will take place in the fall. And beginning Thursday, Israel will have a new prime minister, Yair Lapid. On today's show, we'll catch up and unpack these developments and talk about where we go from here with Dr. Dahlia Scheinlin. After that, we'll turn our attention to the dramatic U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, ending 50 years of American women's constitutional right to make their own reproductive choices. Sheila Katz, CEO of the National Council of Jewish Women, who is on the front lines, will discuss the future of the abortion rights fight and the role of the American Jewish community in future battles. All that coming up. Dr. Dahlia Shenlin is a political consultant and public opinion expert. Most importantly, she is a columnist for Haaretz and co-host of the Election Overdose podcast together with Anshel Pfeffer, which is about to return to Haaretz because, well, Dahlia, it's official. We're looking at a fifth election. Can you believe it? As we say in Hebrew, ma'la'asot. What can you do? So as we look ahead... Talk us through what happens next. Can you give us a brief roadmap for the coming months as we head to an election in the fall? Yeah, the basic outlines of elections are well known to everybody at this point. We have a few months until elections by law. Usually it's a three-month period. It's going to be a little bit more, partly because of the Jewish holidays. But uh, the first thing that will happen is Yair Lapid takes over as the head of a caretaker government. So he's kind of a uh, an interim prime minister. Then the parties will start do- doing the political jiggle, and they will they will do one of the following things. They will establish new parties. They might collapse. Certain parties might collapse entirely. Other parties will merge and other parties will break up. So it will be musical chairs. And until the date when the lists must be submitted to uh, for, uh, for the actual elections, we won't really know who the parties are that are running. And there will be wild speculation about which parties are going to do what. There will also be wild speculation about surveys, which will be not very meaningful because we don't know who the parties are. After the lists are closed, the campaigns can begin in earnest because we will know who's running. And there, I think that's usually around a two-month period after the lists close. I forget the actual time. Um, and then we will see possibly a very vicious campaign until Election Day. Once we have Election Day... We will know the results, but we probably won't know who the government will be, because as far as we can see from all of the polling, which I just said was somewhat meaningless, but it is meaningful for the long-term trends, the breakdown of right, left, and center voting, which has fundamentally not changed very much since the last election, which means we could easily see, again, a hung result without a clear winner Uh, Probably Likud will be the biggest party, but that is no guarantee that it can form a coalition. And then we will start the cycle of months of coalition wrangling, during which the president has to tap one of the party leaders to try to form a coalition. They have about a month and a half in total. They could fail. They could succeed. If they fail, then another person tries. So we're in for a long haul of probably half a year, at least, of not having uh, a permanent government once again. So when they say that Yair Lapid is going to be prime minister, caretaker prime minister for only four months, that's very optimistic thinking. It could be six months or uh, beyond potentially. Well, that's true in the, in the sense that maybe it's optimistic for Yair Lapid to think that he can be prime minister for longer. The question is, what can he really achieve? It's a very murky situation. It's sort of a lame duck approach because 
you know, he doesn't he doesn't have a majority in government. The government, the coalition will have essentially collapsed. And so it's it's hard to imagine just what he can get done. Although uh, since he did stake out an interesting ground on foreign policy, I, I imagine he can continue trying to advance foreign policy developments. Uh, but, yeah, he's going to be in a, a rather limbo kind of prime minister. So we're started with the future. We began with the future. But I think our all of our heads are spinning a little bit about what just happened. Um, especially people who aren't following the day-to-day in and out of, uh, of politics and haven't been following the deterioration of this government, which has been pretty much a months-long process. When people come up to you like that who haven't been following things every day and say, what? Israel's facing a fifth election? What went wrong? Why couldn't this government hold itself together? What do you answer? Well, for people who haven't been following it every day, if they had been following it any day, over the last year and a few weeks, they would have known that this government was very fragile. With eight different parties, it's one of, if not the biggest coalition in Israeli history. It's certainly the most diverse, with right, center, left-wing parties, and Ra'am representing the first time ever that an independent Arab party has joined government, representing the Islamic movement in Israel. There has never been a coalition that had such deep ideological differences, even though we've had plenty of coalitions in the past with left and right parties together. But the combination of all of such a big number and these ideological differences made it precarious from the very beginning. Add to that the opposition, which, of course, every opposition uh, is you know, trying to bring down the government. But this opposition, I would say, was particularly committed to the task and primarily because the leader of the opposition is desperate to get back into the seat of the prime minister, and that's Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and to distract from his criminal trial. And and partly because of. Yeah. And uh, in order to do that, I think that the opposition made a very fateful decision to vote against every piece of legislation that it would have supported for ideological reasons. So when the coalition tried to pass legislation that is fully right-wing in its ideological positions, the opposition made the fateful decision to vote against it, unconcerned about how this would look to their voters, prioritizing the idea of taking down the government over its own ideology. And that has been the case from the beginning of the year. Okay, we think of the trigger for these for this collapse as the vote over what we are calling the regulate the settlement regulations, which uh, establish or can perpetuate civil law, Israeli civil law over Israeli settlers in the West Bank, while Palestinians live under martial law. That's the system of two-tiered law that's been in place since 1967. And every five years, most of the parties reinforce this, but of course the right-wing parties. We think of that vote, which happened, which which began that voting process began to renew that legislation back in late May, early June. Yeah, but the citizenship law came first. The citizenship law began, the voting procedures on this began just a few months after the government was established. This is a, a law that essentially makes it very difficult for Palestinians married to Israeli citizens to have any path to residency, let alone citizenship. Um, and it's uh, it's the kind of thing that the right wing has supported every year, especially since the emergency law was passed, into, the temporary law was passed in 2003. But from the very beginning, the opposition said, we are not going to vote for this, even though we always support it every year. And that was a sign that they would be using that strategy. Now, one more final point about this. There is no question that when you talk about ideological divisions in Israel, the primary ideological division is over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so it should not have been a surprise to anybody that someone as smart as Netanyahu would strategically decide that that is the issue that would drive the deepest wedge between the different members of the coalition and ultimately bring it down. So 
on that Israeli-Palestinian issue. It is a historic moment. Once Yair Lapid is prime minister, he's going to be the first center-slash-center-left prime minister since, it depends if you considered Ehud Olmert at all centrist or center-left, um, since 1999 with uh, Ehud Barak. Do you think that is at all going to influence the vote? Do you think it's going to influence policy, Israel's stature in the world? Because when we kind of look and say, all right, what's going to be different with this fifth election uh, than the previous four elections, it's going to be the fact that we've got Yair Lapid in the prime minister's office. Do you think this is a factor that's going to make this election play out differently than the previous ones? I have a hard time believing that that in itself is going to change the electoral dynamics because the voters know what they're in for. The voters knew that he was supposed to become prime minister. This is not a surprise. He has been among the leading contenders uh, or the leading figures in all of the previous elections. Um, and I but think he was running behind Gantz. He, he was, was running behind Bennett. Yeah. But he was still the symbol of that camp. So in other words, anybody who doesn't want Netanyahu to come back as prime minister, which is the entire camp of self-defined centrists and left-wingers, Already we're hoping that he would ultimately, or somebody from that camp, would ultimately take the reins of the country. And I think for them, it's less important whether that's Yair Lapid or Benny Gantz, as we saw in the first cycle, who, remember, at a certain point got 35 seats. In other words, the center and left would coalesce around anyone who's not Netanyahu. Personally, I don't think it's because they hate Netanyahu. They hate what he represents as a leader. They hate Netanyahu's policies both domestically and in terms of foreign policy and in terms of the Palestinians. So I, I want to put that out there because I think there's a lot of talk about this being for or against Netanyahu, whereas I see it as more substantive than that. And that for that reason, the center and the left would pretty much rally around anybody who uh, represented what they consider to be their values. So I don't think it'll change their minds. If anything, uh, it, it certainly could galvanize the center and left to vote in high numbers to try to prevent the return of Netanyahu and maybe you know grasping the sense of momentum or hope because you know, they're the figurehead of their camp is now prime minister, but they knew that would happen anyway. And the same thing on the other side. There are very few unknown quantities here. Whether it can change Israeli policy, I doubt it, because as we just mentioned, he doesn't have a government. He'll be a, uh, an interim prime minister. It would be very hard to uh, pass any you know serious policy change, certainly not in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Because remember, even though there was a coalition that had the bare majority of 61 seats, a num at least three of those parties were firm, committed right-wing parties. If you count up all the parties in the out in the outgoing Knesset who are ideologically right-wing, there are 72 seats out of 120. They're not about to agree on any far-reaching changes when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Certainly not at a time when Israel's in the middle of an election cycle and there's not even a real functioning government. So uh, I think we in the temptation is to look at this as for or against BB at a shallow level, but also at the political level and forget that ideologically there is still a firm majority for the right-wing parties in the outgoing Knesset, and I expect if the party structure looks roughly the same, that it will either stay that way or even grow. At my peril, I will ask you, what do you think are the possible outcomes of this election, and what do you think would be the best possible outcome? <laughs> the best possible outcome, I think, really depends on your perspective, so I can't say. I certainly think the best possible outcome for the country would be some sort of a decisive result that leads to a stable government that lasts for longer than a year. It's very damaging for the country, for the functioning of simple governance. I think what we saw is an outgoing government that actually was fairly industrious in various fields in terms of managing corona and the economy and foreign policy uh, activities and 
a number of you know needed domestic reforms, that kind of thing has to continue. So certainly the best possible scenario, whichever side you're on politically, is some sort of a decisive result. Unfortunately, I think that's probably not what's going to happen. Um, and from everything we can tell, the political decision-making still does revolve around whether parties will go into a coalition under uh, the premiership of Benjamin Netanyahu, again, if he wins. If there are parties who decide they will not do that, then we're going to be in the same position. Uh, although, again, personally, I understand their decisions. They they say it's not proper in a democracy to sit under the leadership of somebody who's under indictment and facing trial as we speak. Uh, but if that happens, we could, again, see these two sort of 60-60 even blocks. In other words, 60 seats going to the parties who are willing to sit with Netanyahu in a coalition and 60 roughly who are not. And that leads us to another long few months of coalition wrangling and bargaining, and it makes the voters very cynical. It means everything in terms of governance is on hold, and that would be the worst outcome. What are the likely outcomes? I do think that is one of the more likely ones. I, as I said before, I think that there is a likelihood that ideological right-wing parties will, will reach at least 72 seats, if not more. In most of the polling, the ideological right-wing parties, and I include, of course, the religious parties in that, maybe even are reaching up to 75 seats. So that is a likely outcome. Uh, again, what it means for coalition building is not clear yet. And some of those parties may no longer exist by the time the lists have to be submitted. Uh, all of those are possible. It's also possible that some parties will go below the threshold. Right now, Ra'am and Abbas, the major kingmaker who broke that barrier, his party is hovering Teetering. around the threshold yeah. as it was to begin with. So is Meretz for that matter, which is you know, that that was the basis of Meritz's campaign last time. Vote for us or we might go under the threshold. The Labor Party probably won't go under the threshold, but nobody can say. Nobody can say. And so until we know who the lists are, it's very hard to predict. But the general ideological trend in favor of the ideological right uh, to the detriment of the Israeli left and a stable center, which is an interesting thing in itself, is a likely outcome. The center party, uh, headed by Yair Lapid at this point, has been a very, um, I would say, important development over the last roughly decade, because up until then, center parties in Israel rarely lasted more than one cycle. It's to Yair Lapid's credit that he has managed to consolidate that camp and maintain a pretty strong voter base. The ideological center makes up about 25% of the voters. And so I expect that that will continue. Well, the plus side is that there's going to be plenty for you and Anshel to discuss on your Election Overdose podcast. Anshel and I have rarely ever run out of things to discuss. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the only silver lining of fifth elections is the revival of Election Overdose with uh, Dahlia and Anshel. Um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dahlia. Coming up, a conversation about the abortion rights fight with Sheila Katz. Even here in Israel, with our own politics in upheaval, news of the overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision by the U.S. Supreme Court and its turbulent aftermath is dominating the headlines this week. The eyes of the world are on the United States right now and its policies regarding reproductive justice. Here to talk about how this is playing out and the role that American Jews have in the fight is Sheila Katz, CEO of the National Council of Jewish Women. 
Since she joined NCJW in 2019, Sheila has made reproductive rights a flagship issue and a main focus of her organization. She spearheaded the creation of Jews for Abortion Access, a central address for activism and fundraising under her organization's umbrella, and Rabbis for Repro, encouraging and supporting Jewish clergy who teach and preach about reproductive justice and Judaism. She's been on the list of top faith leaders and most influential Jews in the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Sheila. Thank you so much for having me. So with the leak of the Dobbs versus Jackson decision in May, the news of the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the end to the right to reproductive choice for women in America didn't exactly come as a surprise. But still, when you heard the news, how did it hit you? Oh, gosh, it was just devastating. That's the best way I could put it. You know, we've been saying this is going to happen for a long time. And I've also been saying that I really hoped we were wrong um, for a long time. But this is the absolute worst case scenario. Um, Anyone who knows NCJW has known that for the last year or so, we've been mapping out every possible path this decision could go down. And the one that was decided on was absolutely the worst. In what ways is it the worst possible case scenario? I mean, already it's somewhere between 11 to 13 states o- over the weekend have outright banned abortion. Um, and in most of these states, there's no exceptions for rape or incest. And um, I mean, this was this is what needs to be set up for people to continue passing the baton Um, to really eliminate abortion in the United States completely. Um, So as of right now, in the next few months, about half of the country will be able to access abortion and half the country will not. 36 million people who can get pregnant will be impacted by this. Um, But mark my words, this is the beginning of this fight and not the end. And there's a lot we need to do to organize. After the decision, you tweeted, quote, we've been telling everyone to plan for the worst case scenario for months, but witnessing this play out for real is still unbelievable. Our highest court today sided with a loud minority who believe that their religious view is the only faith perspective that can define a life. So can you unpack that last sentence for me? Is the decision, in your view, a form of religious discrimination? How do you talk about the Jewish perspective on abortion when you're discussing and debating the issue? Judaism not only permits abortion, but sometimes to protect the life of the mother, our tradition commands it. And so this is entirely a violation of religious freedom for Jews in the United States. Abortion bans impede our religious freedom. Restrictive abortion laws rooted in just one understanding of when life begins limit our ability to fully practice our religious tradition. This being a Supreme Court decision with no significant change on the bench, on the horizon, it's not really reversible in any way in the foreseeable future. So beyond emotions and outrage, what is the strategy? I know you're involved in a lot of coalitions to uh, fight for abortion rights. How do you fight it on a state and federal level? And how do you see the Jewish community being able to play a role in the fight? 
Yeah, I think the Jewish community absolutely has a critical role to play. First and foremost, because there's a narrative in the United States that faith and abortion don't go together. And the only way you counter an inaccurate narrative, seeing that the majority of people of faith and the majority of Jews support access to abortion, is to counter it with a faith narrative. And that's why it's been so critical, our rabbis for Repro, we have about 1,800 rabbis and Jewish clergy across every denominational spectrum, including the heads of the Reform Conservative and Reconstructionist movements and the current or former heads of three Orthodox seminaries. You know, we we need these voices to speak up because culture change is a part of the change that has to happen in this country. And, and outside of, you know, talking about this as a religious freedom issue, which I do think will lead to multiple lawsuits in this country um, that will play a role in or help support um, there are things that could happen right now. Uh, you know, President Biden could declare this a public health emergency and can make sure and direct the FDA to take away all medically unnecessary restrictions on medication abortion, which are two pills people can take to have abortion safe from their home. Um, and Congress could pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which would supersede what happens in the Supreme Court. And the fact is, when this decision was leaked, Congress voted on the Women's Health Protection Act, and even knowing this was on the horizon, it didn't pass. And I do think it's time not just to wait until they're back from summer vacation, but for everyone to be calling their members of Congress now, either thanking them for supporting the Women's Health Protection Act and asking them what they are doing to convince other members of Congress to sign on, or showing up in outrage that they would have not signed on to the Women's Health Protection Act with everything that's at stake right now. And are you working on a state-by-state level as well as uh, pushing for federal action? Yes. I think one of the interesting trends in the United States on this issue and in, in several other issues, since we've seen a lot of inaction in Congress um, just based off of the makeup of it being so close to 50-50 and how difficult it can be to get things through the Senate, is a lot of the fight has moved to a statewide level. So we're running statewide coalitions and partnering in statewide coalitions, both with other faith groups and civil rights groups. And in the fall, we're organizing a day of action, which will include lobbying. You know, unfortunately, Congress is about to go on recess. And and so the timing of this um, is just devastating no matter what already. Just, just, just to put this in like a... Uh, uh, just to paint a picture of how this is impacting real people, right? Because sometimes the issue of abortion is seen as so theoretical that people forget real people need access to abortion. On Friday, when this decision was made in abortion clinics around the country, people had to go out into the waiting room and tell people on the spot that they were not able to get an abortion, And there were people who were relying on this for multiple reasons, including medical reasons they absolutely needed to have an abortion. And so I would just say in Jewish law, no matter where people are at, everyone would agree that the life of the pregnant person is paramount. And we just witnessed in our country the fetus having more rights than the rights of the pregnant person, which is a real 
problem and direct violation to our religious freedom. And yet, you know, some of the ultra-Orthodox communities in uh, the United States applauded the decision, and the Orthodox Union took this kind of weird middle ground, saying that it could neither mourn nor celebrate the reversal of uh, Roe versus Wade. Well, I think the Orthodox Union statement does clearly say that this is a violation of our religious freedom, and I'm glad that they said that. And I would actually say from where I sit, working with Orthodox rabbis and Orthodox community members and Orthodox women, that the majority of, of the Orthodox community here is also supportive of abortion access. And I'm also questioning why nobody's talking to Orthodox women as part of this. I haven't seen many reports about what Orthodox women are saying. And I think it's really important that we're speaking to the people most directly impacted. And in particular, I want to mention, because the Orthodox community tries to have more babies on average than the average American, they are more impacted by this. Right. When you have a, an unviable fetus, you currently get a DNC procedure to remove the fetus. In Texas, before this decision happened, when they had already basically banned abortion, Orthodox women weren't able to get that DNC procedure unless they proved that they were legitimately about to die. And the threshold for what's considered medically necessary to the Orthodox community and to the American government look different. And it does mean that Orthodox women are going to be put at risk in a disproportionate way just based off of the statistics of how many pregnancies they're having. And as they're going into these pregnancies, that our country is saying that the fetus actually uh, takes priority over the health and well-being of the pregnant person. So I actually think pretty quickly more Orthodox communities, um, if they haven't already, are going to come around because this is going to disproportionately impact the well-being of people seeking pregnancy in their community. So you're clearly very personally passionate about this issue. Um, you came to the National Council of Jewish Women, a very young leader for a very old organization. Your group was founded in 1893. Um, from the beginning, as you stepped in, did you know that reproductive rights would become such a dominant issue for you in, uh, in leading the organization? Or is it something uh, that just evolved? How did you, uh, how did you grow to focus so uh, squarely on this issue? Reproductive access has always been a core issue of National Council of Jewish Women for 129 years. A lot of people don't know this, but we founded the first 10 birth control centers in the United States that later turned into Planned Parenthood. So we've been working on this issue for as long as anyone could be working on this issue and have been in partnership and coalition roles um, for as long as anyone can remember. I think um, it took me a little bit of time to really understand that this is the direction our country was headed in because I didn't want to believe it. But what I can tell you is even before this decision, there were laws chipping away at Roe v. Wade. And so for anyone who was paying attention, as devastating as this decision is, there were already people in this country who might have had a legal right to abortion but still couldn't access it. And we know it's not actually a right if you can't access it. Now, as a result of this decision, 36 million people are not going to be able to have this as a right because they can't access abortion. But it's always been a problem, and it's always been a real intersectional issue of economic justice, racial justice, health care, religious freedom, dignity, LGBTQ. I mean, you name it. This, this touches so many different issues that the Jewish organizations in this country care about that it just felt like an important leadership role for us to be playing now 
And, and I have to tell you, I'm really proud of the American Jewish community in our unified response and how many organizations we're starting to see, you know, talk about creating reproductive leave policies so their employees can take time off. Um, and just today, we learned that Israel on Campus Coalition is actually going to help pay if any of their employees or dependents need access to abortions. I, I think we're really going to see the Jewish community step up and be a moral leader on this issue. And that makes me proud in this moment to be a Jew. And it makes me proud to be leading this organization and helping to work with those organizations as well. It feels like this current reproductive rights battle is kind of putting women's organizations, specifically your Jewish women's organization, back in the spotlight over the recent decades as women became busy with families and careers and the mainstream co-ed Jewish organizations opened their doors to female leaders and took up women's issues. It kind of felt like they were, you know, dropping to the side, that they weren't as important as they once were. And it feels like this battle has uh, has put you guys in front once again. Sure. And I think we always should have been in front. I'm going to say this uh, as honestly as I can. You know, when I started this, I did have a question a few years ago. Do we need women's organizations? Is this an outdated model? But then during COVID, when women were disproportionately impacted in this country, and I watched Jewish organizations fight for almost everything other than childcare. Uh, it reminds me just how important it is that NCJW both do advocacy and have a national leadership role in this country because we are always going to be putting families first. And I think as a community, we claim to care about families. We claim to care about children, but our policies and procedures don't always match that. And that's why it's so important that you have women's organizations having a main seat at the table and a main leadership role so that we can make sure, particularly in moments where there is need that we're advocating appropriately with as much power as we can um, to essentially save childcare, which is what we did during, during COVID. So I think the need is greater than ever. And I think for the first time in my lifetime, I've just witnessed and now I'm experiencing what it's like to go back in time. Um, and, and when I say we're going back in time, I don't even mean to a pre-row world. This is worse than that. And I think my job is to wake everyone up and to say, if you are not paying attention, open your eyes. This is the beginning of an intentional attack on women, families, and people who can get pregnant in this country, and it will not end with abortion. IVF is next. Contraception is next. Marriage equality is next. This is connected to all of the issues that touch women, children, and families in this country. And we need to make sure that every single person is able to decide when, if, and how to start a family on their own terms. Yes, it's been very interesting watching this from Israel because abortion, as you know, is very different under Israeli law. Women don't have the right to an abortion, but they need to get permission from a government committee. And even though nearly everyone ends up getting approval, it's kind of a humiliating process. There have been for reform. So for an article I did yesterday, I interviewed a member of Knesset, Michal Rosin of uh, Meretz, and she's been leading the charge for reform of the Israeli system. And she said what a lot of Israeli feminists are saying now, they are so shaken by what has now happened in the U.S. They say, listen, we want things to be better, but right now we'll feel lucky to hold on to the way that things are, you know, just to stay in place and not get worse the way they are in the United States. And I thought for so long, progressive America,
African-American Jews and women have spoken out against uh, religious oppression of women in Israel. And so how does it feel for you as an American Jew to know that Israeli women are looking at you and worrying about your freedoms? Yeah, well, I'm glad. Thank you. You should be worrying about our freedoms. You know, this is this is a really scary time in America for our democracy. And it's a really scary time to be a, a woman in America. And, 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 and I often say it's a really scary time for anyone who can become pregnant, because as we know, trans men can become pregnant. And we know that not all women can become pregnant. So um, this is um, this is something I, I've never experienced before in my lifetime, and, and it is really, really scary. And, I, and people will die as a result of this. So we're grateful for the care and compassion. It, it's better in Israel than it is in the United States, and always it could be better. And I think the ultimate question at the end of the day around this issue is do we trust women and people who can get pregnant to make decisions for their own bodies? And if the answer is yes, then they shouldn't have to be going before any government and making any special requests. And so I think there's more organizing to be done in Israel. And and I hope actually as a result of what's happening here in the United States, that this be a warning. This could happen anywhere else and that people double down on their efforts to make Israel a safe place for people who want abortions. You might see some Americans showing on up in Israel to access abortions and let us follow your lead. But I think there's more to be done in both countries. And I'm I'm just grateful right now. We use Israel as an example often to say, look at the policies in Israel as a starting point. Sheila Katz, CEO of the National Council for Jewish Women, thank you so much for coming on Haaretz Weekly. And uh, good luck with the work ahead of you. It looks like you've got quite a bit of it to do. We sure do. Thank you. And that wraps things up for another edition of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Dalia Shenlin and Sheila Katz, and to producer Shania Viram. Until next time, I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Shalom from Tel Aviv.